Hello and welcome to the Lazy Book Club podcast, the book club for those who don't want to read or leave the house. My name is Matt Gonzalez. Sure. And I'm Josh Matheson. I totally didn't know you'd even press record there. I was not. My head was like still. I'm scrolling through lots of very tasty looking dishes on my phone. (laughs) I just got lost in that. Well, you're having a much better time over there than I am. I've just knocked a cup of tea over all down myself and I've managed to break my headphones. So it's it's crazy Tuesday morning. It's all going wrong. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon subscribers. Thank you very much to all those people who support us on the podcast. And if you are not a Patreon subscriber, you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash lazybookclubpod. And for the very small fee of $3 a month, you get an extra episode a month as well as access to the video. So you can see me eating my toast while I'm recording this. Woo! This week we are looking at chapter 10. It's the last chapter of the, the 39 steps. <laughs> Hopefully something actually happens. Have we done that before? <laughs> where we've just, Probably. Uh, no, I, I don't know. I need to listen to all the last episodes again. Yeah, can you listen to all every episode <laughs> that we've done? Just to yeah, confirm if you could that. Just do a re-listen across It only has to be the last ones. That's we true. wouldn't sing Final Countdown for, like, chapter one. You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Have you met us? Well, last week, they worked out that the 39 steps are a physical set of steps, and they're actually the steps from where the boat is that's going to be leaving England for Germany is going to be setting off from with this dossier of sensitive information that was acquired in this little cabinet meeting yeah. where someone from Blackstone managed to turn up dressed up as the... Admiral, General, ship Lord of Lord the sea. guy, Lord mm. of the Sea, and just walk off with a briefcase of sensitive information, and no one seemed to notice it wasn't the actual guy. So, top, top, top notch work there by the intelligence services. I don't know why I expected anything more from Britain, judging by yeah. the way things are currently. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then they left them on a train. And they left <laughs> yeah, them on exactly. a bus stop. I'm surprised yet. That's happened a few be- times, doesn't it? Oh, dear. Yeah. So, Hanay has now been given government provisions. They've all said, yep, yeah, my confidence is with Hanay. I reckon he can stop these guys. So, this random civilian with absolutely no experience in espionage and no government credentials or government clearance has been sent off to inter- intercept this spy who's heading back to Germany. And with the help of the Coast what Guard, they've managed to round it down. I know, right? The thing is that. It's a shame, but we know for a fact he's going to go to the right place because yeah. that would be the best thing. Because we've got one chapter left. You know, obviously, the more coincidences that exist, the, the closer it is to being true. That's kind of how it works. But it it would just be so lovely because Hannah's been so like cocksure about it mm. that he was just completely wrong about the 39 steps. And I think we should probably just dive in because this is quite a long chapter. So we've got quite a lot to It's a long chapter hammer through. The long <laughs> oh yeah, what was the chapter title again? The place where everyone converges on the sea at once yeah. and uh, yeah. Nothing and no battle ensues or something that was the a title. A bunch of, a bunch of people meet up somewhere off the coast of Norway and uh, that's uh, a bunch of people stop off at the A2 services just to buy, <laughs> uh, and uh, that would probably and order be more a meal deal. <laughs> yeah, order a meal. I never had. I never had Hannah as a uh, chicken Caesar wrap and Max crisp paprika <laughs> flavor kind of guy. But now we're learning. 
I reckon he's proper beige. I reckon he's lemon and herb all the way, that one. <laughs> yeah, he, he had no, he, no, no, no. He'd get, he'd get a plain ham sandwich with no spread. <laughs> yes. He'd get no, some... Old uh, mustard. No cheese mustard. And onion, cheese and onion walkers mm-hmm. and a uh, some, some flavoured sparkling water. And a granola bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no. Just, just a banana is fine. Thanks. <laughs> Oh dear, it's fun ripping it out of characters. I enjoy this. Yeah, I know. Anyway, this could so we dive like... in. Yeah, I think we. I think we probably should. Chapter ten: Various parties converging on the sea. A pink and blue June morning found me at Bradgate, looking from the Griffin Hotel over a smooth sea to the lightship on the Cock Sands, which seemed the size of a bellboy. A couple of miles farther south and much nearer the shore, a small destroyer was anchored. Scaife, McGilvery's man, who had been in the Navy, knew the boat and told me her name and her commanders, so I sent off a wire to Sir Walter. After breakfast, Scaife got from a house agent a key for the gates of the staircases on the rough. I walked with him along the sands and sat down in a nook of the cliffs while he investigated the half-dozen of them. I didn't want to be seen, but the place at this hour was quite deserted, and all the time I was on that beach I saw nothing but the seagulls. It took him more than an hour to do the job, and when I saw him coming towards me, conning a bit of paper, I can tell you my heart was in my mouth. Everything depended, you see, on my guess proving right. He read aloud the number of steps in the different stairs. Thirty-four, thirty-five, thirty-nine, forty-two, forty-seven, and twenty-one where the cliffs grew lower. I almost got up and shouted. We hurried back to the town and sent a wire to McGilvery. I wanted half a dozen men, and I directed them to divide themselves among different specified hotels. Then Scaife set out to prospect the house at the head of the thirty-nine steps. He came back with news that both puzzled and reassured me. The house was called Trafalgar Lodge, and belonged to an old gentleman called Appleton. A retired stockbroker, the house agent said, Mr Appleton was there a good deal in the summertime and was in residence now, had been for the better part of a week. Scaife could pick up very little information about him, except that he was a decent old fellow who paid his bills regularly and was always good for a fiver for a local charity. Paid his bills regularly? Is that a thing that we say about people? I know, like, you just pay your bills or you don't, surely. Yeah. Most of the time he pays his bills. What a guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if that's all you've got to say about the guy, he must be quite dull. It was his mother-in-law's heart transplant. He didn't pay for that one. Mm. <laughs> uh, what was the other bill he didn't pay for? Um, all of his gas electricity for the year. But he did pay for his uh, magazine subscription. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that was most of them. Coastal homes. That's what he's yes. committed to, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Odd numbers of steps weekly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Then Scape seemed to have penetrated to the back door of the house, pretending he was an agent for sewing machines. What? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. We shouldn't breeze over that little... Uh... Sorry, sewing machine. That was the best they could come up with. 
Oh, this is the most logical. Hi, I'm, I'm, I'm selling sewing machines today. Are you Hi, my name's Darren. Would you like a sewing machine? <laughs> 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 I suppose this, this day, like, there are very different things that people be knocking on doors for. Because, I mean, this is what? This is pre-washing machine. This is pre-dishwasher. This is mm. pre-double pre- glazing. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. There's like quite a lot of stuff. So they wouldn't get a double glazing salesman or anything like that. But yeah, sewing machine, that's brilliant. So, I don't know why that really tickles me. Like the idea of a military man walking up and pretending he works for someone who sells sewing machines. I'd imagine the worst thing about being a sewing machine salesman is that you have to carry many models around with you door to door in case you sell one, which means you've got a lot of weight around. Mm. Like one of those old Singer sewing machines, they're pretty mm. heavy, aren't they? Well, they're normally built into tables as well at this point, weren't they? Because you could like turn yeah. them over and use them as a desk, yeah. and then like, oh, uh, sure, yeah. Oh. Also, wouldn't you have to like demonstrate it just to like prove it was good? So, like, yeah. where are your sewing machines, sir? I don't have one on me. <laughs> I don't know how much of it though. Sometimes where it's just someone travelling around with a catalogue, and then oh, they really? take the orders for you, and they post- go away and order it, and then they bring it. Do you know what I mean? So it's almost oh. like, All right. it's almost like the man version of Argos. Where mm-hmm. like, yeah. they bring door door you the catalogue. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. I <laughs> bought a like, that machine one, and a that Hot one, Wheels <laughs> uh, track set. <laughs> and some light bulbs. Holly Pockets are on sale. <laughs> and a tap. A Casio watch. <laughs> yeah. Only three servants were kept. A cook, a parlour maid and a housemaid. And they were just the sort that you would find in a respectable middle class household. The cook was not the gossiping kind and had pretty soon shut the door in his face, but Scaife said he was positive she knew nothing. Next door, there was a new house building, which would give good cover for observation, and the villa on the other side was to let, and its garden was rough and shrubby. I borrowed Scaife's telescope, and before lunch went for a walk along the rough. I kept well behind the rows of villas and found a good observation point on the edge of the golf course. There I had a view of the line of turf along the cliff top, with seats placed at intervals, and the little square plots railed in and planted with bushes, whence the staircases descended to the beach. I saw Trafalgar Lodge very plainly, a red brick villa with a veranda, a tennis lawn behind, and in front the ordinary seaside flower garden, full of margarets and scraggy geraniums. There was a flagstaff from which an enormous Union Jack hung limply in the still air. Presently I observed someone leave the house and saunter along the cliff. When I got my glasses on him, I saw it was an old man, wearing white flannel trousers, a blue serge jacket, and a straw hat. He carried field glasses and a newspaper, and sat down on one of the iron seats and began to read. Sometimes he would lay down the paper and turn his glasses on the sea. He looked for a long time at the destroyer. I watched him for half an hour, till he got up and went back to the house for his luncheon, when I returned to the hotel for mine. I wasn't feeling very confident, This decent, commonplace dwelling was not what I had expected. The man might be the bald archaeologist of that horrible moorland farm, or he might not. He was exactly the kind of satisfied old bird you will find in every suburb and every holiday place. If you wanted 
a type of the perfectly harmless person, you would probably pitch on that. But after lunch, as I sat in the hotel porch, I perked up, for I saw the thing I had hoped for and had dreaded to miss. A yacht came up from the south and dropped anchor pretty well opposite the rough. She seemed to be about a 150 tons, and I saw she belonged to the squadron from the White Ensign. So Scaife and I went down to the harbour and hired a boatman for an afternoon's fishing. I spent a warm and peaceful afternoon. We caught between us about 20 pounds of cod and lithe, and out in that dancing blue sea I took a cheerier view of things. Above the white cliffs of the rough, I saw the green and red of the villas, and especially the great flagstaff of Trafalgar Lodge. About four o'clock, when we had fished enough, I made the boatman row us round the yacht, which lay like a delicate white bird, ready at a moment to flee. Scape said she must be a fast boat for her build, and that she was pretty heavily engined. Her name was the Ariadne as I discovered from the cap of one of the men who was polishing brasswork. I spoke to him and got an answer in the soft dialect of Essex. Another hand that came along passed me the time of day in an unmistakable English tongue. Our boatman had an argument with one of them about the weather, and for a few minutes we lay on our oars close to the starboard bow. Then the men suddenly disregarded us and bent their heads to their work as an officer came along the deck. He was a pleasant, clean-looking young fellow, and he put a question to us about our fishing in very good English. But there could be no doubt about him. His close-cropped head and the cut of his collar and tie never came out of England. <laughs> that did something to reassure me, but as we rode back to Bradgate, my obstinate doubts would not be dismissed. The thing that worried me was the reflection that my enemies knew that I had got my knowledge from Scudder, and it was Scudder who had given me the clue to this place. If they knew that Scudder had this clue, would they not be certain to change their plans? Too much depended on their success for them to take any risks. The whole question was how much they understood about Scudder's knowledge. I had talked confidently last night about Germans always sticking to a scheme, but if they had any suspicions that I was on their track, they would be fools not to cover it. I wondered if the man last night had seen that I recognised him. Somehow, I did not think he had, and to that I had clung. But the whole business had never seemed so difficult as that afternoon when by all calculations I should have been rejoicing in assured success. In the hotel I met the commander of the destroyer, to whom Scaife introduced me, and with whom I had a few words. Then I thought I would put in an hour or two watching Trafalgar Lodge. I found a place farther up the hill, in the garden of an empty house. From there I had a full view of the court, on which two figures were having a game of tennis. One was the old man, whom I had already seen. The other was a younger fellow, wearing some club colours in the scarf round his middle. They played with tremendous zest, like two city gents who wanted hard exercise to open their pores. You couldn't conceive a more innocent spectacle. 
They shouted and laughed and stopped for drinks when a maid brought out two tankards on a salver. I rubbed my eyes and asked myself if I was not the most immortal fool on earth. Mystery and darkness had hung about the men who had hunted me over the Scotch moor in aeroplane and motor car, and notably about that infernal antiquarian. It was easy enough to connect those folk with the knife that pinned Scudder to the floor and with fell designs on the world's peace, but here were two guileless citizens taking their innocuous exercise and soon about to go indoors to a humdrum dinner where they would talk of market prices and the last cricket scores and the gossip of their native Surbiton. <laughs> I used to live there. That's so boring. <laughs> I had been making a net to catch vultures and falcons, and lo and behold, two plump thrushes had blundered into it. Presently, a third figure arrived, a young man on a bicycle, with a bag of golf clubs slung on his back. He strolled round to the tennis lawn, and was welcomed riotously by the players. Evidently, they were chaffing him, and their chaff sounded horribly English. Then the plump man, mopping his brow with a silk handkerchief, announced that he must have a tub. I heard his very words. Uh, and then we hear this plump man. Can, when he's speaking, he can just have a normal voice, but can we imagine he's eating a meal deal from that service station? <laughs> he's like taking a bite of his... Mm, and, um, so he's got something in his mouth the whole time. Okay. <laughs> and, um, I heard his very words. Well, uh, oh, I, got, I got into a proper lather, he said. Well, this will bring down my weight and my handicap, Bob. <clears throat> I'll take you on tomorrow and give you a stroke a hole. <laughs> you couldn't find anything much more English than that. Uh, they all went into the house and left me feeling a precious idiot. I'd been barking up the wrong tree this time. These men might be acting, but if they were, where was their audience? They didn't know I was sitting 30 yards off in a rhododendron. It was simply impossible to believe that these three hearty fellows were anything but what they seemed. Three ordinary, game-playing, suburban Englishmen. Wearisome, if you like, but sordidly innocent. And yet there were three of them. And one was old, and one was plump, and one was lean and dark, and their house chimed in with Scudder's notes, and half a mile off was lying a steam yacht with at least one German officer. I thought of Carolides lying dead, and all Europe trembling on the edge of earthquake, and the men I had left behind me in London, who were waiting anxiously for the events of the next hours. There was no doubt that hell was afoot somewhere, the black stone had won, and if it survived this June night, would bank its winnings. So obviously it's mentioned their stature. Has it mentioned their stature because remember when he was being pursued, there was a thin guy and a, and a bigger guy? Well, he talked about it corresponding with Scudder's notes, but I, I can't remember if there was any reference to men in that. Yeah, but, but remember that like he was being pursued by... A big An guy and a skinny guy before, wasn't he? Those are the people who were looking for him. Yeah. There seemed only one thing to do. Go forward as if I had no doubts. 
and if I was going to make a fool of myself, to do it handsomely. Never in my life have I faced a job with greater disinclination. I would rather in my then mind have walked into a den of anarchists, each with his browning handy, or faced a charging lion with a popgun, than enter that happy <laughs> home of three cheerful Englishmen and tell them that their game was up, how they would laugh at me. I don't know why, but the first time I saw that when he said, or faced a charging lion with a pop gun, I thought the lion was holding the pop gun. (laughs) That's that's where my head went as well. I was like, what's worse than a lion? A lion with a gun, surely. Yeah, but a pop gun's the one with the cork. Yeah. You know, the little kid ones where you pop in, the the cork pops out and it's on a string and then you pull it back and it sucks it back in again. And you go, pop, 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 pop. I no, 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 no. So it's like a little. Where it is now, yeah. So it's I, like a little haven't... chamber, like a syringe. But imagine like the handle, like a syringe, and you yeah. push it, and it pops the cork out with the air, and it's got a string attached to it. So when you pull it back, it pulls the cork back in, and then you can pop it again. I had a spud gun. Oh, as a oh, oh you have yeah. Lived. See, that's a different thing. I had one of those as well. But it's less. It's I mean, a spud button that still, uh, uh, you know, attacks someone in a way. I mean, not that it's any sort of. But this is purely the sound. So basically, yeah, it's a fake gun. It's basically what the bottom line It's very fake, though. I don't think you could hold up a supermarket with it. No. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That would be amazing. I would love that. But no, the lion does not have the pop gun. The guy hunting the lion or facing the lion has the pop gun. It's a shame. I would have definitely preferred it if the lion (laughs) had the pop gun. But suddenly, I remembered a thing I had once heard in Rhodesia from old Peter Pienaar. I've quoted Peter already in this narrative. He was the best scout I ever knew, and before he had turned respectable, he had been pretty often on the windy side of the law when he had been wanted badly by the authorities. Peter once discussed with me the question of disguises, and he had a theory which struck me at the time. He said, barring absolute certainties like fingerprints, Mere physical traits were very little use for identification if the fugitive really knew his business. He laughed at things like dyed hair and false beards and such childish follies. The only thing that mattered was what Peter called atmosphere. If a man could get into perfectly different surroundings from those in which he had been first observed and, this is the important part, really play up to these surroundings and behave as if he had never been out of them, he would puzzle the cleverest detectives on earth. And he used to tell a story of how he once borrowed a black coat and went to church and shared the same hymn book with the man that was looking for him. If that man had seen him in decent company before, sorry, if that man had seen him in decent company before, he would have recognised him but he had only seen him snuffing the lights in a public house with a revolver. The recollection of Peter's talk gave me the first real comfort that I had had that day. Peter had been a wise old bird, and these fellows I was after were about the pick of the aviary. What if they were playing Peter's game? A fool tries to look different. A clever man looks the same and is different. Hmm... That's quite interesting, actually. Yeah. I suppose that, like, is that kind of what they do spycraft-wise in, like, Bourne and other things like that? Where they, like, try and put themselves into a different 
scenario and act like they belong there. So most people do that with like pretending to be a tourist, don't they? You see quite a lot of spy shows where suddenly they'll don a, a hat and a map and then they'll pretend they don't know where they're going and suddenly it's like, he's disappeared. Yeah, you get a lot of that in like uh, in the Oceans films, like in the heist films. Mm. They're, they're like, yeah, he's, he's like, got to be here. I remember this one bit where Matt Damon has to fill in because somebody else couldn't do a yes. certain role. And he's talking through like what he has to do. And he's like, you have to be funny, but not too funny. And you have to say this. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. You, yeah. And, you, and you have to be like, he has to remember you and then immediately forget you as soon as you're not there. Yeah. Yeah. This, um, it, 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 I reckon this is probably quite true because it's like, when you see somebody you know well, but in a different setting, yeah, it takes you a long time to place the face. It does, yeah. And so, yeah, seeing somebody you're looking for in a new setting, but acting like they belong in this new setting, and not, you know, you would it would throw you. You'd, you'd double guess yourself. You'd you'd yeah. think, oh no, I must be, I must be getting confused. That must be somebody else. Yeah. So there you go. If you ever want to commit a crime, anybody listening, um, just act like you're supposed to be there. Change your clothes and act like you're at home. And carry a pop gun for protection. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so after you've rubbed the supermarket with a pop gun, yeah. Don, yeah. Uh, don a supermarket, like, you know, a high-vis jacket in the car park and start collecting trolleys and no one will suspect you. <laughs> Dream. Yeah, or you just, or you just you never leave the crime scene, and then you just keep going around like you're still shopping. Yeah, just never leave the crime scene, and people won't even realise that you you weren't <laughs> supposed to be there. There you go, done. Yeah, yeah. Perfect crime. Again, there was that other maxim of Peter's, which had helped me when I had been a roadman. If you're playing a part, you will never keep it unless you convince yourself that you are it. That would explain the game of tennis. Those chaps didn't need to act. They just turned a handle and passed into another life, which came as naturally to them as the first. It sounds a platitude, but Peter used to say that it was the big secret of all the famous criminals. Has Buchan ever like, trained as an actor? Because I remember I reading know. in like acting books for screen and things like that, basically saying where a lot of actors, when they're doing something like a fight scene or or something like that, they don't they're not thinking about the acting because you're thinking about what you're doing, yeah. And so yeah. it's almost easier to be because you're being, and it's like that's basically what he's saying here, isn't he? He's like, what better way to pretend that you're an English person enjoying a holiday than by doing something like playing a game of tennis? Because oh, you yeah. don't have to think about pretending to be a person on holiday playing tennis when you're playing tennis yeah you've got you've got something to do yeah yeah you don't have to call you're not going to sit there constantly analyzing going wait do i look guilty if i just sit in the lobby with a book am am i am i loitering am i if you're in a scene if you've got something to do like you're not talking or you're talking but playing chess it's yeah you're right yeah it it distracts you from getting in your own head yeah which is like the thing exactly what am i doing with my hand yeah, <laughs> that old that That's like my go-to thing to do when I'm working with actors who just look a little bit uncomfortable in their space. So they don't seem at home. Is give them a preoccupation. So I'm like, play yeah. the scene again, but make a cup of tea while you're doing it. And yeah. then all of a sudden, they're like, oh, okay. Play the scene again, but hold up a supermarket with a pop gun. With a pop gun. <laughs> it's faith. I do not love thee for thine eyes. But they in thee a thousand errors do know. And give me all your money. It was now getting on for eight o'clock, and I went back and saw Scaife to give him his instructions. I arranged with him how to place his men, and then I went for a walk, for I didn't feel up to any dinner. 
I went round the deserted golf course and then to a point on the cliffs farther north beyond the line of the villas. On the little trim newly made roads I met people in flannels coming back from tennis and the beach, and a coast guard from the wireless station, and donkeys in pierrots paddling homewards. Out at sea in the blue dusk I saw lights appear on the Ariadne and on the destroyer away to the south, and beyond the cock sands the bigger lights of steamers making for the Thames. The whole scene was so peaceful and ordinary that I got more dashed in spirits every second. It took all my resolution to stroll towards Trafalgar Lodge about half past nine. I just find it weird because he keeps going, it looks really ordinary and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, all that you are looking for is like one guy with a folder getting in a boat going out to sea. Like you're not looking for like a massive army or... It's like he's looking for the whole village to be in on it. But this is what mm. I mean. He's like, he keeps saying, like, oh, everything's so watery. So, and it's like, you're only looking for a little guy in a dinghy, like setting off for a yacht. Like that happens yeah. along the coastline around Britain all the time. Yeah. So I don't quite know what he's I think he expecting. wants to imagine he's in like the thick of like a, an enemy base, military yeah. base in the mountains. and like He's like yeah. waiting for machine gun fire to like come at him and all this kind of stuff, isn't he? And like watchtowers yeah, like, and light searchlights and air raid sirens. He's going to start throttling Mildred in the village shop for answers. <laughs> <laughs> Hold her up with a pocket. I know you know. On the way, I got a piece of solid comfort from the sight of a greyhound that was swinging along at a nursemaid's heels. He reminded me of a dog I used to have in Rhodesia, and of the time when I took him hunting with me in the Pally Hills. We were, after Reebok, the dun kind, and I recollected how we had followed one beast, and both he and I had clean lost it. A greyhound works by sight, and my eyes are good enough, but that buck simply leaked out of the landscape. Afterwards I found out how it managed it. Against the grey rock of the copiers it showed no more than a crow against a thundercloud. It didn't need to run away. All it had to do was stand still and melt into the background. Suddenly, as these memories chased across my brain, I thought of my present case and applied the moral. The black stone didn't need to bolt. They were quietly absorbed into the landscape. I was on the right track, and I jammed that down in my mind and vowed never to forget it. The last word was with Peter Pienaar. Scaife's men would be posted now, but there was no sign of a soul. The house stood as open as a marketplace for anybody to observe. A three-foot railing separated it from the cliff road. The windows on the ground floor were all open, and shaded lights and the low sound of voices revealed where the occupants were finishing dinner. Everything was as public and above board as a charity bazaar. Feeling the greatest fool on earth, I opened the gate and rang the bell. A man of my sort, who has travelled about the world in rough places, gets on perfectly well with two classes, what you may call the upper and the lower. He understands them and they understand him. I was at home with herds and tramps and roadmen, and I was sufficiently at my ease with people like Sir Walter and the men I had met the night before. I can't explain why, but it is a fact. But what fellows like me don't understand is the great, comfortable, satisfied, middle-class world, the folk that live in villas and suburbs. 
He doesn't know how they look at things. He doesn't understand their conventions. And he is as shy of them as of a black mamba. When a trim parlour maid opened the door, I could hardly find my voice. I asked for Mr Appleton and was ushered in. My plan had been to walk straight into the dining room, and by a sudden appearance wake in the men that start of recognition which would confirm my theory. But when I found myself in that neat hall, the place mastered me. There were the golf clubs and the tennis rackets, the straw hats and caps, the rows of gloves, the sheaf of walking sticks, which you'll find in ten thousand British homes. A stack of neatly folded coats and waterproofs covered the top of an old oak chest. There was a grandfather clock ticking, and some polished brass warming pans on the walls, and a barometer, and a print of Chilton winning at St. Leisure. The place was as orthodox as an Anglican church. When the maid asked me for my name, I gave it automatically, and was shown into the smoking room on the right side of the hall. That room was even worse. I hadn't time to examine it, but I could see some framed group photographs above the mantelpiece, and I could have sworn they were British public school or college. I had only one glance, for I managed to pull myself together and go after the maid. But I was too late. She had already entered the dining room and given my name to her master, and I had missed the chance of seeing how the three took it. When I walked into the room, the old man at the head of the table had risen and turned round to meet me. He was in evening dress, a short coat and black tie, as was the other, whom I called in my own mind the plump one. The third, the dark fellow, wore a blue serge suit and a soft white collar and the colours of some club or school. The old man's manner was perfect. And then we hear from Mr. Appleton. What does he sound like? These were the guys who were just playing tennis, weren't they? Yeah, this is Mr. Middle Class Mill. Can we do a tennis voice somehow? What on earth, Matthew, is a tennis voice? Um, do Andy Murray. Uh, Fifteen love. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, quite, I prefer Andy Murray as a as a doctor. <laughs> I mean, you could do Andy Murray as well, but I mean, he kind of mumbles. Yeah, you wouldn't understand. And he is meant to be someone of good breeding and good manners. So, and then could he give a little <laughs> at the end of each like oh my. paragraph? Hey. Who are you, David yeah. Cox? <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly can i just finish the sentences and wait for one of you to do a tennis noise <laughs> okay but it, it should be like right at the end of the section don't do it every sentence like at the end of his when he stops talking for good that's where it goes the old man's manner was perfect mr Haney, he said hesitatingly did you wish to see me one moment you fellows and i'll rejoin you I'd better go to the smoking room. Ugh. Though I hadn't an ounce of confidence in me, I forced myself to play the game. I pulled up a chair and sat down on it. I think we've met before, I said, and I guess you know my business. The light in the room was dim, but so far as I could see their faces, they played the part of mystification very well. Maybe, maybe, said the old man. I haven't a very good memory, but I'm afraid you must tell me your errand, sir, for I really don't know it. 
Can I just say, I'm enjoying that you slightly softened the R's just then. I did. I did. You can go with that if you want. I like right? the no, idea of him that. saying it was terrific. <laughs> yeah, but I, I'm really, quite truly. I thought it was, I thought it was really good. Yeah, <laughs> very, really good. You really got into the erotic nature of the <laughs> words. Go <laughs> 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 to say again, well, like Hane, what are you doing? You've literally called for like half a dozen men as backup, and you've just walked into this person's house to try and accuse them of impersonating, like being the people at the heart of this conspiracy with no backup and nobody there. To help, he's a he's a. Man. What is he expecting to do? Just walk in and go? Ah, oh, I knew it was you. You're under citizen's arrest. Like you, you're not even a police officer. He can't even arrest anybody. It's true. It's very true. This is what happens when Hannah gets bored, as we've learned. He yeah does, he takes matters into his own hands. He's impulsive. It's been like half a day in like quite a sleepy place, and he's doing stuff. <laughs> well then, I said, and all the time I seemed to myself to be talking pure foolishness. I've come to tell you that the game's up. I have a warrant for arrest of the three of you gentlemen. No, you don't. Arrest? <laughs> said the old man. <laughs> and he looked really shocked. Arrest? Good God, what for? <sighs> <laughs> for the murder of Franklin Scudder in London on the 23rd day of last month. I never heard the name before said the old man in a dazed voice. One of the others spoke up. Oh, one oh, of the others. others. Okay. Helpfully, as a voice. Um, this one, one can be Andy Murray. Have you got an Andy Murray, like, mumble voice? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. I had a really good game the other day. David <laughs> uh, <laughs> smashed it. Uh, you really just have to not put a lot of muscularity into around. It's just minimal it. effort, isn't it? Yeah. Everything is minimal effort. Very much so. <laughs> one of the others spoke up uh, that was the Portland police murder uh, yeah, I read about that uh, good heavens yeah must be mad sir where do you come from Scotland Yard I said <laughs> is this before they had laws about impersonating police officers I don't know when that law came. Uh, I suppose even just saying I've got a warrant for your arrest is... I've got a warrant for your arrest and I'm in Scotland Yard. Like, that's just a blatant lie. He's lying. He's very... Well, he's, not, he's sort of a representative, but he's very much not official, is he? Well, no, but no. he doesn't have a police badge. He's got absolutely no power under the law to arrest anybody. True. He's, he's acting do... like he's a man of the law and he's not. Like, mm. you can only do a citizen's arrest if you see someone actually committing a crime, can't you? Yeah. Like, i.e. that you'd you'd be absolved. I mean he's basically oh, yes, he's the big. little the little kid from school that's been given a ride along. That's basically what he is right now. He's probably got one of those like milk cap sheriff badges they give the five year olds who come and visit the police station like underneath his blazer. <laughs> <laughs> After that for a minute there was utter silence. The old man was staring at his plate and fumbling with a nut, the very model of innocent bewilderment. Then the plump one spoke up. He stammered a little, like a man picking his words. Don't, don't get flustered, Uncle, he said. It's all a ridiculous mistake. But these things happen sometimes, and you can easily set it right. It, it won't be... It won't I want to know what he's eating. Uh, it sounds really good. <laughs> it, I can tell you, it's pretty tasty. Uh. 
Oh, it won't be hard to prove our innocence. I can I can tell you that I was out of the country on the twenty third of May, and Bob was in a nursing home. You were in London, but um, you can explain what you were doing. Right, Percy. Of course, that's easy enough. The twenty third. That was the day after Agatha's wedding. Let me see. What was I doing? I came up in the morning from Woking and, and lunched at the club with Charlie Simons. Then, oh yes, I, I dined with the fishmongers. I remember, uh, for the punch didn't agree with me and I was seedy next morning. Hang it all, there's a cigar box I brought back from the dinner. Ugh. He pointed to an object on the table and laughed nervously. Ah. Uh, I think, sir, said the young man, addressing me respectfully, you will see you are mistaken. We want to assist the law like all Englishmen, and we don't want Scotland Yard to be making fools of themselves. That's so, uncle. Certainly, Bob. The old fellow seemed to be recovering his voice. Certainly, we'll do anything in our power to assist the authorities. But... But this is a bit too much. I, I can't get over it. Oh, how Nelly will chuckle, <laughs> said the plump man. She always said that you would die of boredom because nothing ever happened to you. And now you've got it thick and strong. And he began to laugh very pleasantly. By Jove, yes. Just think of it. What a story to tell at the club. Really, Mr. Hannay, I suppose I should be angry. To show my innocence, but it's too funny. I almost forgive you the fright you gave me. You look so glum, I thought I might have been walking in my sleep and killing people. It couldn't be acting. It was too confoundedly genuine. My heart went into my boots and my first impulse was to apologise and clear out. But I told myself I must see it through, even though I was to be the laughing stock of Britain. The light from the dinner-table candlesticks was not very good, and to cover my confusion I got up, walked to the door and switched on the electric light. The sudden glare made them blink, and I stood scanning the three faces. Well, I made nothing of it. One was old and bald, one was stout, one was dark and thin. There was nothing in their appearance to prevent them being the three who had hunted me in Scotland, but there was nothing to identify them. I simply can't explain why I, who as a roadman had looked into two pairs of eyes and as Ned Ainsley into another pair, why I, who have a good memory and reasonable powers of observation, could find no satisfaction. They seemed exactly what they professed to be, and I could not have sworn to one of them. There in that pleasant dining room, with etchings on the walls and a picture of an old lady in a bib above the mantelpiece, I could see nothing to connect them with the moorland desperadoes. There was a silver cigarette box beside me, and I saw that it had been won by Percival Appleton, Esquire, of the St. Bede's Club in a golf tournament. I had to keep a firm hold of Peter Pinier to prevent myself bolting out of that house. Well, said the old man politely, Are you reassured by your scrutiny, sir? 
<laughs> I, cu- I couldn't find a word. I hope you'll find it consistent with your duty to drop this ridiculous business. I make no complaint, but you'll see how annoying it must be to respectable people. I shook my head. Oh, Lord, said the young man. This is a bit too thick. Do you propose to march us off to the police station? Asked the plump one. That that might be the best way out of it. But I suppose you won't be content with the local branch. I have the right to ask to see your warrant, but I I, I don't (coughs) wish to cast any aspersions upon you. You were only doing your duty, but you'll admit it's horribly awkward. What what, what do you propose to do? There was nothing to do except to call in my men and have them arrested, or to confess my blunder and clear out. I felt mesmerised by the whole place, by the air of obvious innocence, not innocence merely, but frank, honest bewilderment and concern in the three faces. Oh, Peter Pienaar, I groaned inwardly, and for a moment I was very near damning myself for a fool and asking their pardon. Uh, meantime, I vote that we have a game of bridge, <laughs> said, the, said the plump one. It will give you, Mr. Hannay, time to think over things, and you, you know we've been wanting a fourth player. Do you play, sir? <laughs> I accepted, as if it had been an ordinary invitation at the club. The whole business had mesmerised me. We went into the smoking room where the card table was set out, and I was offered things to smoke and drink. I took my place at the table in a kind of dream. The window was open, and the moon was flooding the cliffs and sea with a great tide of yellow light. There was moonshine, too, in my head. The three had recovered their composure and were talking easily, just the kind of slangy talk you will hear in any golf clubhouse. I must have cut a rum figure, sitting there knitting my brows with my eyes wandering. My partner was the young dark one. I play a fair hand at bridge, but I must have been rank bad that night. They saw that they had got me puzzled, and that put them more than ever at their ease. I kept looking at their faces, but they conveyed nothing to me. It was not that they looked different. They were different. I clung desperately to the words of Peter Pienaar. Then something awoke me. The old man laid down his hand to light a cigar. He didn't pick it up at once, but sat back for a moment in his chair, with his fingers tapping on his knees. It was the movement I remembered when I had stood before him in the moorland farm, with the pistols of his servants behind me. Uh, it's the archaeologist. The bald archaeologist. Oh, he's yeah. there. Yeah, so it's he's the archaeologist. The guy. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Oh. So, I mean, we'll continue with the the tennis voice as long as as long as these people are trying to keep up their disguises. We'll we'll keep their voices and then we'll revert. I mean, the other two never had voices before. I don't think, unless they end up being the ones who've been chasing him, and then they were gangstery people, weren't they? They were Russian, yeah. Hmm. A little thing, lasting only a second, and the odds were a thousand to one that I might have had my eyes on my cards at the time and missed it. But I didn't, and in a flash the air seemed to clear. 
some shadow lifted from my brain, and I was looking at the three men with full and absolute recognition. The clock on the mantelpiece struck ten o'clock. The three faces seemed to change before my eyes and reveal their secrets. The young one was the murderer. Now I saw cruelty and ruthlessness, where before I had only seen good humour. His knife, I made certain, had skewered scudder to the floor. His kind had put the bullet in Caroline's. The plump man's features seemed to dislimb and form again as I looked at them. He hadn't a face, only a hundred masks that he could assume when he pleased. That chap must have been a superb actor. Perhaps he had been Lord Loa of the night before, perhaps not, it didn't matter. I wondered if he was the fellow who had first tracked Scudder and left his card on him. Scudder had said he lisped, and I could imagine how the adoption of a lisp might add terror. But the old man was the pick of the lot. He was sheer brain, icy, cool, calculating, as ruthless as a steam hammer. Now that my eyes were opened, I wondered where I had seen the benevolence. His jaw was like chilled steel, and his eyes had the inhuman luminosity of a bird's. I went on playing, and every second a greater hate welled up in my heart. It almost choked me, and I couldn't answer when my partner spoke. Only a little longer could I endure their company. Phew! Bob, look at the time, said the old man. You'd better think about catching your train. Bob's got to go to town tonight, he added, turning to me. The voice rang now as false as hell. I looked at the clock, and it was nearly half past ten. I'm afraid he must put off his journey, I said. Oh, damn, said the young man. I thought you'd drop that rot. I've simply got to go. You can have my address and I'll give any security you like. Uh, no, I said, you must stay. At that, I think they must have realised that the game was desperate. Their only chance had been to convince me that I was playing the fool, and that had failed. But the old man spoke again. I'll go bail for my nephew. That ought to content you, Mr. Hannay. Was it fancy, or did I detect some halt in the smoothness of that voice? There must have been, for as I glanced at him, his eyelids fell in that hawk-like hood which fear had stamped on my memory. I blew my whistle. In an instant the lights were out. A pair of strong arms gripped me round the waist, covering the pockets in which a man might be expected to carry a pistol. Schnell, Franz! said a voice. Das Boot! Das Boot! As it spoke, I saw two of my fellows emerge on the moonlit lawn. The young dark man leapt for the window, was through it, and over the low fence before a hand could touch him. I grappled the old chap, and the room seemed to fill with figures. I saw the plump one collared, but my eyes were all for the out-of-doors where Franz sped on over the road towards the rail entrance to the beach stairs. One man followed him, but he had no chance. 
the gate of the stairs locked behind the fugitive, and I stood staring, with my hands on the old boy's throat, for such a time as a man might take to descend those steps to the sea. Suddenly my prisoner broke from me and flung himself on the wall. There was a click, as if a lever had been pulled. Then came a low rumbling far, far below the ground, and through the window I saw a cloud of chalky dust pouring out of the shaft of the stairway. Someone switched on the light. The old man was looking at me with blazing eyes. He is safe, he cried. You cannot follow in time. He is gone. He has triumphed. The Schwarze Stein is in the Siegeskrone. There was more in those eyes than any common triumph. They had been hooded like a bird of prey, and now they flamed with a hawk's pride. A white, fanatic heat burned in them, and I realised for the first time the terrible thing I had been up against. This man was more than a spy. In his foul way, he had been a patriot. As the handcuffs clinked on his wrists, I said my last word to him. I hope Franz will bear his triumph well. I ought to tell you that the Ariadne for the last hour has been in our hands. Seven weeks later, as all the world knows, <laughs> what? You can't we went do that. to war. I joined the new army the first week, and owing to my Matabele experience, got a captain's commission straight off. But I had done my best service, I think, before I put on khaki. End of novel. What? Of novel. <laughs> End of the novel. That is the worst ending of the book ah. I've ever heard. Oh my goodness. Okay, we need to talk about a few things. <laughs> like... <laughs> The it's fact that so this book unfair. has been labelled as a thriller is just hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it is not. In fairness, when he was when he was escaping the house and like scaling down, and he knew he had like pursuers and stuff, he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah sort of. Like yeah. that was probably, and that was not even at the sort of part of a book where you're really getting to the nitty gritty of the action. That was kind of preamble. But yeah, that was a anticlimax. I mean, even his plan was terrible. His plan was just to go to dinner with them and carry a rape whistle with him. Like, that's literally <laughs> all his plan was. Yeah, when I blow my whistle, just come in. Like, and they still got but, away. I mean, it. No, but it worked. But they got but away. He was pretty quick. Well, one of them got away, but they arrested yeah, the Yeah, Franz, other... the guy with the information, got away. <laughs> yeah. The one person they actually were, who was saying he needed to leave. And they were talking about white smoke. I was like, oh, is it? And it was from underground. I was like, oh, what's that? Uh, 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 did, did you? I, I don't know. I don't get. And then. Yeah, I don't know. And then we never knew what the th where the 39 steps were after all. <laughs> we're guessing it was on the other side of the cliff. And that's what it was. But like what you do is then you reveal, you do another thing. You go, no, yes, you were right. But actually, that's what it was. And it was something even more terrible. And it was like they dig some like underground lair or something. And it was like a like a bomb or something i know i'm going very bondy here it's like he ran out of time in an exam <laughs> <laughs> but had all the time in the world 
also that was a long chapter that's probably yeah. the, the joint longest chapter with like the start one so you think yeah. okay fair enough there's there's stuff to put in there and build it and then you have like a long conversation and don't like allude to anything and there's no sort of like tension built then he's like oh it is them and then it stops yeah like just from a, a narrative point of view like it's just not interesting enough or or there's not enough payoff for, for, for him just to go and then they did a little twitch that reminded me of someone and then I knew. That's just not enough, like, for him to not, not know and then all of a sudden be absolutely convinced. I mean, I suppose there are some little ticks and stuff that do kind of make you recognise people or, like, you know, that make you go, oh, actually, no, you can hide. It's like the tell, isn't it, in poker or anything. You can you can act yeah. confident, but there's always something that will give you away because it's part of who you are or your being. Um I'm trying to work out what's going on with this this chalk dust. I don't know if like so the guy like jumps out the window, runs across the road, jumps over the gate to where the stairs are and then locks the gate behind him so that the the guy chasing him couldn't get to it, get to him. And then the prisoner, like the old guy broke free, met, flung himself on the wall, pulled a lever then a rumbling yeah. came from far below the so, ground well, that, and he saw Cody. So I don't know, did it, did it release a vehicle or did it like break the stairs behind him so that people couldn't follow or I yeah. don't know. It, it, it doesn't even tell you. It's like That's the one little James Bond bit that's interesting. You can't even imagine it. You're like, well, it's like, oh my goodness. And that was the, you go, well, that sounds interesting. Talk yeah, about that. Tell bit. me more. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but no, instead, tell me about the hooded eyes instead. That's a lot more interesting. We spent like five times longer look, looking at um, Tide Times than we did yes, a we conversation did. between the <laughs> antagonist of the book and the main guy. And there could have been a real confrontation about this. Yeah. And that was our whole plan the whole time. And, and like, you know, you know it's the best part is when a villain is telling, is telling them their plan. Yeah, and yeah that's because really they exciting. love to gloat. Um, yeah. You can't spend 80% of a novel crawling through fields in Scotland and then end it like that. No. <laughs> I mean, he's not even been that imaginative with the guy's like name. is like Franz, because it's Franz Ferdinand is the guy who died, wasn't it? Who started yeah, World he, War One. Okay, yeah, so he's, he's made the killer Franz instead. Yeah, But it's <laughs> like he's tried to get that name in there to kind of tie it up. But I thought this was going to be like a reimagining of the whole war and maybe a stop to it, but it just turns out history just rolled out exactly the same. He's just, he's just changed the names and the places. Yeah. And, and then he loses the fact that he's going out, he's going, yeah, he's going to serve. And yeah. The thing that you could have stopped and all that's happened is lots of, a few people have died along the way. Mm. Um, I nearly stopped it. I nearly did it. Yeah, do you and, reckon and I, like I, the really annoying the guy in the is... trench? <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah. we, we all could have not oh. been here. What, if yeah. you'd done your job better? Yeah, great. Yeah. I'm I'm actually really, really disappointed with how that book ended. I know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. But it is a lot, yeah. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it's, ni- it's nice. 
you know, it, it it shows the people that we don't just like choose guaranteed winners on here. No. Um, it's but true. what we can't, what you know, what we can't do is uh, tell people that it's going to be a bad payoff. <laughs> no. Yeah, like, so episode one, just so you know, this ends really rubbishly. <laughs> <laughs> Volume. To be, well, it doesn't matter what I'm saying, because anyone that's got this far is probably feeling the same. I don't yeah. know. It kind of makes um, it difficult to have spontaneous in the moment reactions if you already know how the book ends. Do you know what I mean? So you do have to yeah. kind of like, you know, go I along the journey. We can't do that for any else. of our books. Um, uh, but that ending didn't even align with the title of the chapter. No. Various parties. I know. People didn't even sea. converge on the it sea. They were converged the... in a house. There was no converging on the sea as far as no, I can tell. No, there wasn't. There wasn't. Wow. And it was two parties. One was kind of outside and one was inside. And they converged for a very short amount of time. And they didn't converge properly as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Is the um, Ariadne is the, the, the ship, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So basically saying, like, we've got the ship. It's in our hands. It's been that way for the last hour. So is he thinking at that point that Franz will get stopped by the other ship? Well, I'm guessing he probably does. And he's like, seven weeks later, we're all in trenches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Clearly didn't work. I'm oh, bitterly dear. disappointed. Yeah. No, I don't even know what else to say, to be honest. That's what it is. Again. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you've got any more insight or thoughts or opinions on this book, maybe we're just remembering the bad bits. Maybe if you can think of any of the good bits, you can let us know at the lazy book club at gmail.com. Um, you, if you've got, uh, if you could end that chapter better in 240 characters, um, <laughs> it wouldn't be and hard. Put spoilers. Um, uh, one tweet. That's that's the challenge. Um, then try try and do it. We, we'd we'd enjoy that. Maybe it would satisfy us a bit more. Do that on Twitter at lazy book club pod. Do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Even um, even easier job for you. Draw a picture that sums up the whole of the novel. Um, I'll give you a clue. Just draw a man in a field uh, and then put it on Instagram. Uh, I, thought you, I thought you were going to say a steaming poo. A, st- <laughs> a, a massive turd and pop it on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> I would also invite people to... Um, post the face you made when you heard the end of the book <laughs> we'd love to see the confusion and the puzzlement yeah, and the yeah. bewilderment as to how someone thought that that was a satisfying way to end a, end a novel but there we go david you're actually going on a little trip soon aren't you for a couple of weeks yeah i'm just going on, on my holly bobs yeah has put that to the sword i mean hopefully i'll get away yeah. By the by, the time this comes out, I might be in Portugal, so that's good. Okay, oh, that's delightful. So, so that's we're going to have a little break at the end of this season, just so that David isn't trying to bum internet and carry all of his recording equipment with him while he's away. So we will be not posting anything probably for the next two weeks at least. Um, but during that time, once we have picked a book, hopefully with a better ending. We will be making an announcement between this season and the next one of what we have chosen to read next. Otherwise, if you are a Patreon subscriber, you will be getting a grim episode this week. So if you are wanting to hear more, maybe have a hear another story to wash the bad taste out of your mouth, 
then subscribe to Patreon, $3 a month, and you'll get another story, which hopefully may end a little bit better. Well, uh, you, could, you could listen to any of the other, any any ending of pretty much any book we've done. Maybe yeah, not Alice in Wonderland. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, go back and listen to the last chapter of all the books we've done and yeah. decide which you think is the worst. <laughs> <laughs> no, but if you sign up for Patreon now, you not only obviously get the story that's coming out this month, but there's a whole bunch of other you ones. get all the other ones. You get all the backlog. It's true, it's true. Great. And if you want to have a little look, there is actually a taster episode of one of the Grimms posted as well um, just before this season. It was. Actually, which was just to keep you taking over as well. So we will see you next season as they after a short break. Do keep an eye out for the announcements of when we start back again and we will see you then. Bye. Bye. Cheerio.